Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What if it was a mistake from the start? The Declaration of Independence, the American Revolution, the creation of the United States of America. What if all this was a terrible idea? And what if the injustices and madness of American life since then have occurred not in spite of the virtues of the Founding Fathers, but because of them? The Revolution, this argument might run, was a needless and brutal bit of slaveholders' panic mixed with enlightenment argle-bargle, producing a country that was always marked for violence and disruption and demagogy. Look north to Canada or south to Australia, and you will see different possibilities of peaceful evolution away from Britain towards sane and whole, more equitable and less sanguinary countries. No revolution, and slavery might have ended, as it did elsewhere in the British Empire, more peacefully and sooner. We could have ended with a social democratic commonwealth that stretched from north to south, a near continent-wide Canada. Wow. So that, Tom, was Adam Gopnik, a very great essayist, in The New Yorker in May 2017, asking if the American Revolution was a mistake from the start. And of course, you and I will have our own opinions about whether or not it was a mistake. <laughs> but the fact is that as we reach episode four of this mighty epic, we are in, what, 1778. The French and soon the Spanish uh, have piled in, or, or in the Spanish case, will pile in. Uh, and they will be followed by other countries who form a league of armed neutrality, the Russians, the Danes, the Prussians, the Austrians, the Portuguese. They're basically making it very difficult for the British and from this point, don't you think, Tom, the game is kind of up for, for Britain? I think the game has been up right from the start. I don't do think you? there was any prospect of the British ever. I think it was unwinnable from the beginning. Yeah, I do. So Adam Smith, Professor Adam Smith, who is the Edward Osborne Professor of American History at the University of Oxford, who has been performing manfully in these uh, four episodes. Adam, do you think the game was up from the very beginning? I think the game was up if the goal was a restoration of the status quo as it had been before 1775. I think other alternatives might have been possible. I think if, you know, if we talked about in the previous episode, if Washington's army had been captured, if Saratoga hadn't fallen, I mean, there are other options. Yeah. But the possibilities narrow and narrow and narrow. And definitely by the time you get to the French intervention, which is where we ended the last episode, very, very difficult to see how the British get out of this. And yet the funny thing is, you mentioned Washington. So Washington at this point, I mean, he's the great hero for the Americans, obviously, commander of the Continental Army. At the point that the French get involved, he is really in the depths of sort of despondency, isn't he? Because Philadelphia had been taken by the British, and he has led his army into winter quarters at a place called Valley Forge, um, which is about just under 20 miles northwest of Philadelphia. And he's there for six months. 
and they've got nothing to eat. It's freezing cold. They're really miserable. And Valley Forge is the sort of so Ronald Reagan, big favorite of yours, Tom, of course. <laughs> Uh, Ronald Reagan used to tell this story about Washington kneeling in prayer at Valley Forge and asking God for help. Um, and, and Valley Forge is a really important part of the American mythology of the revolution and the war, isn't it? Because it's sort of, again, it's the underdog spirit. The odds are against us. And, you know, God was with us. Providence was with us. Did, was it? Do you think it really deserves that reputation, Adam? Well, it was another. it was another moment when... It's easy to imagine how the Continental Army could have completely dispersed. And if that had happened, the calculations would have shifted. It doesn't. It's not to say that there wouldn't have been some other kind of military force that would have been put together, perhaps under Washington, perhaps under somebody else. But it was certainly a desperate moment. And you know, the reason, as you, as you say, Dominic, I mean, the reason why it's become so much part of the myth of the American Revolution in the, in the United States is because it reinforces this underdog um, narrative and in that Reaganite way, because it it implies at least that it's only because of God's providence that it was possible in the end for the Americans to triumph. God and women. Am I right? Martha Washington is there too. She's, uh, I don't know anything about Martha Washington, but she's followed George and she's there sort of bandaging people and I don't know, making soup or something. That sounds like I'm being flippant about, but obviously women play a huge part in the American revolution from the beginning, not least in following their husbands or their boyfriends with the army. And they do all the important stuff behind the lines, like washing their clothes, bandaging their wounds, providing them with food, all those things, which an army absolutely depends on. Well, Thomas Paine has a brilliant description of of the whole setup with so all the men who were busy building up the fortifications and the women labouring, um, and he he says that it was like a family of beavers, so busy <laughs> That's nice. labouring away. I know you, you you like a beaver, yeah. Tom. I love um, a beaver. Yeah. Uh, but but Adam, uh, so women in the American Revolution, we haven't talked about women much, but they are. I mean, historiography now really plays up the the part that women played in a way that wouldn't have been the case a hundred years ago, and critically so because. This was a war which, as, as we've in effect been, been emphasizing, was, was won or lost by the American white colonial public and their commitment to this cause. And so it was in American households that sacrifices were made, that commitments were made to try to wait out this through this time of trial. The presence of the Redcoats, the presence of the army in itself intensified American commitment to try to, that the only possible outcome with any honour was complete victory, complete independence, removing British troops forever from American soil. King George had already been taken down. None of that is explicable if the only focus is on the men in the armies and the generals making the decisions on the American side and the founding fathers who are all, of course, men. But of course, there's a, there's a, isn't there a famous exchange of letters, Abigail Adams? Is it Abigail Adams? Yes, John Adams' wife, yeah. Where she writes to him when they're passing the Declaration of Independence and says, you know, while you're remaking the world, think yeah. about women as Do well. Do not forget the ladies. To get, forget the ladies. Yeah. And he sort of writes yeah. back in this incredibly condescending <laughs> way and says, yeah, right, 
you know, like yeah. we're going to do that. <laughs> like we're going to give you a second thought or something. So was there he, ever... He a- does, he does. Although in fairness, I mean, that's actually a magnificent exchange of letters. I mean, John and Abigail Adams write to each other. They're, they're apart most of the time throughout this whole revolutionary crisis. And he clearly takes her incredibly seriously as a kind of counsellor and source of advice. And he tests out ideas with her and he wants her, he wants to know what she thinks and what people around her back in Boston are thinking. So it's actually quite a really impressive and interesting, close political relationship as well as emotional one between John and Abigail. So could there have been a more, as it were, a more progressive outcome for women for the poor, for slaves, for people who are pushed to the margins of kind of American political life, or was it always going to play out as it did? But doesn't, I mean, doesn't, the the war is kind of bad for slaves because they are seen as having sided with the British. So in a way, the kind of the structures of oppression become a tightened as a result of the Revolutionary War. Yeah, well, I think gender and class work out in different ways from race in the American Revolution. And, you know, there is a moment in the 1790s when women are enfranchised in New Jersey, famously, they're kind of almost accidentally enfranchised if they're, if they're property owners, some women, a tiny number of women. Um, in terms of poor white men, the American Revolution was almost everywhere a great boon. And some of the new state constitutions that are being written around about this time Pennsylvania being the best example, um, incredibly radical constitutions that give huge amounts of power to ordinary white um, propertyless men relative to anywhere else in the world or that really has ever been properly dreamed of anywhere in the world other than, you know, at, at, at the most radical extreme moments of the English Revolution of the, of the 1640s. What about, um, let's say, Indians, so Native Americans? So the British are trying to enlist Native Americans as allies. And in fact, Throughout all this period, there are there's very bloody fighting on the kind of western in the western borderlands, the kind of frontier zone. Um, does the American Revolution work out well or badly? Well, I mean, I'm guessing what your answer is going to be. The answer is not well for not well. Native Americans, and is that because previously they had just been seen as King George's subjects, like any others, but now they are seen as enemies? Yeah, I guess for the reasons we were talking about in the first episode, it was in the interests of policymakers in London to try to balance the. Um, the powerful indigenous nations in North America against um, white settlers. And um, and the, the French did the same. And the French were making alliances with the Native Americans. The, the practical effect of American independence um, was that Native American peoples were then regarded as being essentially fair game within the boundaries of the newly established United States. And no, it was a, the American Revolution was clearly a bad thing from the point of view of indigenous people. And Adam, just to follow up on that, that the, the, the Native Americans are seen as having allied themselves with the British and presumably even more so that's the case with, um, uh, slaves in the South who have not only, um, escaped their owners, but in certain cases have actually joined the British army. So there's a, there's a famous Ethiopian regiment, it's called. And then there's a squad of black dragoons who are enrolled in the British army. Black loyalists um, play an important role and not, not a role that's dwelt in traditionally in American uh, historiography until the last um, couple of decades. And the Ethiopian regiment, I think, was originally raised by, by Lord Dunmore and was a direct consequence of the proclamation that we talked about in a, in a, in a previous episode. One of the soldiers in the Ethiopian regiment, Harry Washington, was uh, owned by George Washington, being born in the Gambia 
purchased by Washington some 10 or 15 years before the war, ran away when he heard of Dunmore's proclamation and fought for the king throughout the Revolutionary War, was eventually, I think, um, among those black loyalists who were evacuated by the British and uh, settled in Nova Scotia. So the what was it, the phrase, sometimes liberty wears a red coat or something? Um just throwing that out, our American <laughs> listeners. Yeah, there are surely no American <laughs> listeners left. So, so let's um, let, let's get back to something that will be cheerier for American listeners, namely the gradual implosion of the British war effort. So we ended the last episode, February 1778, the French piling in. The Spanish have joined a year later. And that obviously, as we were saying before, completely changes the dynamic because the British... Because they want to back. I mean, that's basically what they yeah, want. The Spanish do indeed. But of course, for the British, it's not just defending the Caribbean. They also know how to defend Britain. Yeah. I mean, so Adam, the chances of a French invasion, I suppose they're they're not enormous, but they're not negligible either. I mean, Brit- the British are always worried about a French invasion in this period, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, this isn't just theoretical. There was an armada, the armada of seventeen seventy nine, Dominic. So there, there was a there was a an attempt by a combined French and and, and Spanish uh, navy um, uh, it attempted at the very least to kind of divert Britain from the the war in in the Americas and in the Caribbean and all these other places Britain was trying to defend. But, you know, with a genuine prospect of landing uh, in Great Britain. And and the the most famous kind of naval innovation in this is that they um, the French government commissions an American called John Paul Jones, don't they, who's a kind of former slave ship captain, to actually go and raid the British coast, which he, he does with some success. Whitehaven. Yeah, he, he shells Whitehaven and Cumberland. Uh, and he, he's still quite remembered there. If you go to Whitehaven, where there is, by the way, an excellent second-hand bookshop, um, <laughs> that, uh, that John Paul Jones is, is still w- w- remembered in Whitehaven, and rightly yeah. so. And he, he, he ends up taking shelter in the Netherlands, which I think reflects very poorly on the Dutch that they allowed him in. So his life then takes a series of very bizarre twists, Tom. He, um, he ends up in Russia after that. He's accused of raping a 10-year-old girl. Ooh. And... Um, he goes to Poland and then he goes back to Paris and he ends up being made U.S. consul in Algiers. Of then, course. Yes, of course he does. Yes, against the slavers. But then dies before he can take up his – he's found dead in his Paris apartment. Isn't that a strange wow. life? There's the plot of a thriller. Mm. Yes. Anyway, so, anyway, so that's that, all part of the – So that's not good for anybody. Well, it's not good for the for people of Whitehaven, I think it's no. going to say, Adam. Um, but the British still have a – the amazing thing is they don't give in. They don't just say, right. Let's just cut our losses and why? Why not? Why do we keep going? Just pride, stubbornness. I think. I think yes. I think those things. Um, I mean, it's. I mean, that really is a great question because by this point, you know, the support in the House of Commons for Lord North is ebbing away. It starts losing some critical votes. I mean, there are plenty of people in Britain by this point saying, "Let's cut our losses and get out." But it's a massive thing. It's a massive thing to acknowledge the independence of these 13 colonies, you know. But also, I mean, as late as 1780, Britain is still winning victories. They are. So they win the Battle of Camden, which for any Londoner is a kind of an amusing idea. Um, That's South Carolina, isn't it? Yes, Yes, South South Carolina, Carolina, not in North London. And they're Um, fighting in the South because there is, and actually this is a good answer to your your question, Dominic. I mean, as Tom's Tom's implying there, there is still this thought, well, maybe we can turn this around. And they're fighting in the South, not least because in the the South, they have good reason to believe there are still lots of loyalists there. And there are. There are loyalist um, uh, groups who are irregular forces who are fighting to try to uh, support the British. And so the famous story of... 
an American independence fighter who gets turned, of course, is Benedict Arnold. Um, mm. And uh, he is, um, so what was he? He was a kind of very distinguished general, kind of very energetic general, uh, kind of loses his mobility. He, he he gets badly injured in his legs, but is still very kind of feisty. Yes. Um, and feels that he's not getting the credit that he's owed. Yes, he's not being promoted because he's from the wrong place and there's all this business about the Continental Congress wanting to share out the commissions among the different states and all this kind of thing. And he's clearly a kind of prickly, ambitious figure who doesn't think he's getting his fair dues. He's also married to a beautiful woman, Peggy Shippen, who is a loyalist from a loyalist family anyway in Philadelphia. And he, as you say, he gets turned and he thinks actually, maybe I could get more accolades and get more glory if I defect to the British side. And um, it goes wrong from his point of view. I mean, he he ends up, um, he survives. Because um, he gets offered the command of West Point, doesn't he? And it's suggested that he He, he does, and he's over. going to surrender. The plan is he's going to surrender West Point to the to the British, but the plan is exposed before he can do that. Um, he manages to escape. His wife Peggy eventually manages to escape as well, and they're reunited uh, in in London. But the the guy who'd been running the messages, Major John Andre, is captured by the Americans, and he's and, British, is and he? he is British, yeah, and he is executed as a spy, and he's hung. He's not shot as a gentleman should be, but he's hung. And even the Americans who capture him and are holding him prisoner in the weeks before he's executed think they just swoon over this guy they think john andre is the most magnificent <laughs> military figure astonishing bearing good looking brave and when he walks out and to his final execution and he's still astonished because he thinks he's going to be shot until he sees the noose hanging there and he's asked if he wants to say any last words and he says bear me witness that i bear my fate like a brave man and they all go oh how magnificent <laughs> oh, it's so and scary and are- so, so so there's absolutely a sense still that the americans are capable of admiring uh officers in the in the british army but equally there is also um a figure who is up there in the annals of infamy alongside benedict arnold who is a british officer called bernastre tarleton brilliant and he is the guy who inspires what's his name in the patriot the kind of the villainous mel gibson's villain but he's a tremendous man isn't he bernastre tarleton he looks gallant he kind of looks the part and uh he he kind of wins a battle and and the um the his opponents surrender and then he, he all his men slash them and kill them. Um, and so this is uh, Tarleton's quarter, it's called. The Tarleton complained that he'd been actually, his, his horse had been shot from under him and he'd been stuck under the horse, so he wasn't in a position to But I mean, you could out. argue, couldn't you, Tom, to go back to the thing we were talking about in previous episodes, that if the British Army had been had rather more Tarletons and fewer yes, gentlemen might. Johnnies or whatever they were called, <laughs> yes. then maybe they would have done a bit better than sort of playing by the Queensbury rules, which they're sort of doing throughout. Is that fair, Adam? Or am I being too uh, well? It, too it, it certainly would have created a, a, a different outcome. But all you know, as we were saying before, all the time the British are saying, "Well, you know, we, we it's a hearts and minds strategy," and they just don't quite bring themselves to it. And and really, if every British general had been a bloody Ben Tarleton, I mean, is it going to fundamentally change this story? I don't think it is. All it would have done is to really even further entrench poison the, relations, yeah. wouldn't it? Yeah. Just to just to go back to the question I asked 
10 minutes ago, which was about um, why we why Britain kept fighting, why Britain didn't throw. I suppose one answer is that the British, I mean, nobody knows how the story will end. So nobody knows that all 13 colonies will become independent. And as you said, there are still lots of loyalists in, let's say, South Carolina or North Carolina or wherever. Mm. So perhaps do the British think, you know what, the South is quite lucrative with its plantations. Yeah. We could keep those states. Maybe, okay, New England is gone, maybe Pennsylvania, wherever. But Virginia, the Carolinas. Well, because, of course, with the French entering the war, there's the risk that the, the Caribbean colonies might go as well. And the British are facing the prospect of losing all their colonies in the New World. So the fact that they're able to hold on to their their Caribbean colonies suggests that that's not entirely a foolish strategy, right? Well, I think, yes, they're always trying to hold on to the Caribbean colonies, number one. I mean, that's, that is the thing that they absolutely cannot happen, is that the French and Spanish would take Jamaica and Antigua and um, Barbados. Did people in London envisage some scenario whereby some of the southern colonies uh, remained loyal? Yes, they, they definitely did. All options were still on the table, I think. And that's no doubt part of the reason why the war continued. And, and as Tom said, they're still winning battles. So they've taken, yep. they take Savannah, they take Charleston, they win this battle at Camden. The guy who wins that is uh, General Cornwallis, who's yeah. from a Whig family. You know, your classic, I mean, basically a casting agency have supplied an old Etonian to command a British army, but actually he's really good at it. Mm. So Cornwallis is remembered as this terrible disaster, but he's won lots of battles. He fought in the Seven Years' War. He's famously gallant. He voted mm. against the Stamp Act. And he goes on to become um, Governor-General in India, doesn't he? He does. After, so he's, after, he, yeah. he's not a kind of complete weed and a nothing a like, he's, like no. he's remembered. And then once he's won Camden, he moves north, doesn't he? He moves into North Carolina. And he thinks, right, what I need to do is to cut the rebel supply lines from Virginia. So he ends up going into Virginia. And this is... I mean, it's so the, the the camp. We're not a military history podcast, as probably everybody can tell. But he um, <laughs> he's sort of trudging this way and that across the landscape, and he ends up in a peninsula. <laughs> to use the technical language, yeah, that's exactly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> some people may say that about this podcast that that basically we trudge this way and but, that. But Dominic, you know historical. You, but again, you know what's intriguing about this yeah. is that he knows what is coming. So he's been commanded by General Clinton to go and do this, and he he's saying no. I think this is a terrible idea. Um, but he, you know, he obeys. But even as he's doing whatever it is you were saying, trudging around, he's kind of writing letters and keeping correspondence to make sure that you know he he will be able to, to say that he thought this was a bad idea. So again, it's this sense of defeatism. I, he said he writes to Clinton. I assure you, I'm quite tired of marching about the country in quest of adventures. Because yeah. that's it, and that's basically <laughs> yeah. what he's doing. And he ends up in this peninsula called the Williamsburg Neck, where he decides. There's a place called Yorktown. This is a good base. I'll get supplies from the sea here. And this obviously is, I mean, it's got a tiny bit of the feel of the Battle of Actium to it, I think, Tom. You know the Battle yeah. of Actium where they got kind of cornered, didn't they, Mark Antony and Cleopatra, blockaded by um, Octavian's fleet. And he basically manages to corner himself in this peninsula where Washington pitches up with the French. They outnumber him two to one. And he's thinking, well, maybe I'll get supplied from the sea. And then the French fleet sails into view and he thinks, oh, God. Oh, it's all over. That ship has sailed, as it were. Yeah. And and then um, it's a swamp, which is a very poor choice, I think, of uh, topographical choice because they all get malaria. Half of his men get malaria. He realizes he's not going to be able to get out. They're all hungry, very miserable. And eventually, the 19th of October, 1781, Cornwallis says, enough. I, you know, I surrender. 
Um, and he's too ill to attend the ceremony himself. Well, so he says. So he says. So it's a kind oh, of what is it with you cynics? What is it with you cynics? <laughs> <laughs> so he sends out his second in command, doesn't he, to surrender? And so George Washington refuses to accept the surrender from the second in command and asks his second in command to accept the surrender instead. The, the British would have been happy to surrender to the French. Yeah. Um, but not to the. Because it's humiliating levels. for them. And so they all walk out, don't they? They kind of have to walk for um, a, a kind of mile, a mile long gauntlet. They have to run it. And then um, when they, they, they have to hand over all their weapons. And so the British troops hurl down their, their, uh, their muskets in the hope that they'll smash it up. But it's been a very unsporting end. They're not even allowed to play the right music and stuff. And they're not allowed to carry their flags unfurled. They have to furl their flags. Yeah. Um, but having said that, Washington then once the surrender has been completed, invites um, all the senior officers for a party, which is wonderful, except for one officer, who is, of course, Banastre Tarleton. Oh, Tom. So he remains the baddie that they love to hate. So Washington, unsporting behaviour followed by very sporting behaviour. But then six days after the surrender, he issues an order that says that all the slaves that have joined the British, my troops are now to round them up and return them to their owners. Which is the kind of detail, Adam, that, you know, 21st century historians seize on as the, a sort of unsettling one in a, what's normally a very patriotic narrative. It is unsettling if you have swallowed the patriotic narrative that I suppose many Americans did over many generations. It's not in the slightest bit surprising, though, is it? I mean, they're in a slave society. They The core thing about slavery is that it's a, a claim to property. And if you that there would have been no possible alternative um, course of action for Washington himself, who, of course, is a slaveholder. And in a slaveholding state, colony of Virginia, what, what else would he would you expect him to have done in that situation? So there's no sense there that that's bad behaviour. I mean, almost everybody involved with the um, American cause would say that's, that's exactly what we'd expect him to do. No, I wouldn't go that far because the... The 13 colonies were diverse and complicated places. And, and I, think, a- I mean, also, right, that, it, that in northern states, so in Philadelphia particularly and in New England, that the process of the war is, gives a massive boost to abolitionism, as it has done in Britain as well, actually. It does. Yes. Yeah. So the, the impact of the American Revolution on slavery is, is a highly complex one. In, in some ways, it reinforces it. In other ways, it gives a huge boost to the anti slavery movement you know both things are true simultaneously yeah yeah okay well, let's let's take a break now so cornwallis has has surrendered effectively it's the end of the war but when we come back let's look at, at how the war is officially concluded um and then think about the short-term and the long-term consequences of it this episode is brought to you by better help bottling everything up is never a good idea it can have terrible consequences For instance, look at all the conflicts throughout history. I wonder how many of them could have been solved if they just talked things out. And Tom, I have a confession for our listeners. As you know, I've been really struggling with anxiety about the massive series that we've got coming on The Rest is History, all the prep we have to do for that series on the French Revolution, the First World War. I mean, it's all mounting up, isn't it? And when we talked it out, I felt so much better now that I got all those crippling anxieties and insecurities off my chest. If you want to talk, you can always talk to me. But if not, then I highly recommend therapy. It can help you learn positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. It empowers you, Dominic, 
to be the best version of yourself. If you want to give therapy a try, why not check out BetterHelp? It's entirely online, it's convenient and flexible, and it's really easy to get started. You just fill out a brief questionnaire and they'll match you with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash restishistory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash restishistory. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome back to The Rest is History. It's the final section of our four-part epic, um, the heroic Adam Smith. Like George Washington, he's been in the field for what seems years. His sword is still unsheathed. And Adam, uh, we're approaching the end, and basically Cornwallis' surrender, that's it. And is it recognised as such by everyone? When the news gets back to London... And Lord George Germain, who I actually don't think we've mentioned so far in this discussion, but he's the poor guy in London who's having to try to run the war on behalf of Lord North. He realises the significance of this. The king realises the significance of this. This, is, this isn't this is the only British army in the field. The British still hold New York. They still hold Charleston, Charleston, uh, South Carolina. They've still got a military presence, but this is this is a blow from which they know they, they can't come back. And they're also the same, round about the same time, the French had won a victory at St. Kitts and the Spanish had just captured Menorca. So it's like one of those, you're playing one of those kind of uh, strategy games where everything is going wrong at once. You think, okay, it's time to cut the losses. Um, But oddly, so this is a a weird detail. Cornwallis surrenders in October 1781, but the Treaty of Paris is not for another two years. What's going uh, on in the intervening two years? Well, partly what's going on is 
um, naval warfare in the Caribbean. So really, the, 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 the war, I mean, there, there are three different wars happening simultaneously here. There's the war between the British regulars and the American troops, the Continental Army, which we've mostly been talking about. Secondly, there's a kind of civil war within the colonies, which we've referred to a little bit, but it's really important in some places, sort of loyalists and patriots and kind of really nasty, violent stuff. And then thirdly, there's the global conflict. There's Britain on the one hand and France and Spain on the other. And that war uh, continues uh, beyond uh, Yorktown and the naval battles that take place in the, in the, in the coming months, which are British victories and which secure Antigua and, uh, the other sugar islands. Um, that's the way in which the British in London would like to think that the war has, has ended. That's the note they want to end on. And that's important to their negotiators. And also Adam, isn't it? Um, Admiral Howe, who'd been, who'd been in command of the naval fleet, the naval forces in the Revolutionary War, he's come back and he comes to the liberation of Gibraltar. So, there's a sense in which Gibraltar is more important than America. Yes. So actually, from the British point of view, they come out of this thinking, okay, well, we lost the colonies. That's been a bit of a disaster. But actually, in the grand scheme of things, we've got we've out of this. the bullet. Could we've have dodged. been much worse. Right. It could have been much worse. And in a way, the fact that everybody's ganged up on Britain, is that effectively revenge, as it were, for the Seven Years' War, and is that recognition that the Seven Years' War had put Britain up there to be shot at in a yes. kind of preeminent position? I think that's absolutely right, Dominic. Yeah, that's exactly. And it's a really, it's a scary moment. People in London, are, that's what they're really frightened of, is this isolation in Europe. You know, because all of British foreign policy through the 18th century is to avoid, and into the 19th century is to avoid isolation in Europe of the kind that happens in the in the. 17, late 1770s and early 1780s, and they, they don't want that to happen again. That's the lesson the British policymakers draw. Right. But actually, so Britain, I think it's fair to say, I mean, obviously, I, I know our remaining American listener will say, I've never heard such a, <laughs> I've never heard such a partisan podcast in my life. Patriotic tosh. Um, but it's fair to say that the British have made a series of very bad mistakes from the start of this series to right to this point. Yeah, but in a weird way, the British really distinguish themselves with the peace, don't they? Because they they get the Americans to sign a peace. They do a deal with the British alone, and they give the Americans much more generous terms, much than more the, than the French or the Spanish want them to. Absolutely. And Frank Franklin's negotiating it in Paris, isn't he? Yes. And he's he's a kind of very free form negotiator. You know, the British say, "Let's do this," and he goes, "Yeah, why not? Brilliant." The story of the Treaty of Paris is usually told in a as a great triumph for Franklin's negotiating skills. And, and no doubt the Americans did do a good job. But fundamentally, what this is about is that the British definitely did not need to agree such generous terms to the new United States. But it was in Britain's interest to do that. Once the 13 colonies had been lost, it was in Britain's interest to have a reasonably strong United States in North America as a bulwark against the French. Yeah, because the, and also what, to keep them, presumably to keep them on board because of, there's Canada and there's the Caribbean as well. Indeed, indeed. And you know what? The, the worst outcome in the Treaty of Paris for Britain would have been, the, would have been France um, reclaiming some of her possessions in, in North America or, or Spain doing likewise. And so a weak, fragmented, tiny United States just clinging to the Atlantic seaboard, which would have been certain to invite another war very soon, that wouldn't have been in Britain's interest either, so long as they wanted to hold, as you say, Tom, as long as they wanted to hold on to their possessions in, in Canada. And just on, I mean, people will often talk about the, um, 
what the Americans call the Revolutionary War and we call the American War of Independence. People often talk of it as a civil war. When it's over, I mean, when they are meeting Franklin, who, you know, used to play chess with British guys when he was in London before the war, is there bad blood? Or are they all sort of shaking hands and drinking port and kind of chuckling about, you know, funny things that happened at Saratoga or whatever? I mean, what's the sort of atmosphere like between Britain and America in the immediate aftermath? There's a very emotional moment when John Adams comes to London as the first minister from the new United States, and he's presented at court. And he has a conversation with the king. And they're both very emotional about this, and the, the, the king certainly so. Um, but John Adams pledges the future friendship of the United States and emphasizes all the common ties of culture and language and religion and with the strong implication that now this late unpleasantness is behind us, at the end of the day, we are now like you and like we've always been a great Protestant power. And we know who our enemies are. They're the French. And that was why Je Thomas Jefferson, <laughs> in contrast, did not go down so well in London. So the answer to your question, Dominic, is it depends on which Americans yeah. you're talking about. Because Jefferson is a shameless Francophile, isn't he? He is, and he remains a shameless Francophile even into the 1790s. As the guillotine is falling, Jefferson is toasting yeah. the, the, the Chateau of the Loire and whatever it is. <laughs> so one of the, I mean, one of the famous paradoxes of history is that actually um, the real impact of the American Revolution falls on France rather than on Britain because yeah. French support for the American um, war effort costs them a lot of money, bleeds them of so much money that it precipitates the revolution. And you, you talked about um, America being Protestant but one of the uh, other interesting kind of corollaries of the war period is that Jefferson is able to make the case for there being kind of wide-scale re religious tolerance. And that is something that be simply because the structures of kind of establishment churches are no longer able to be maintained. And so that's another f very, very significant fruit of the, of the Revolutionary War, isn't it? Yes. I mean, pretty much everybody imagines that the religious toleration is within a Protestant context. It's a different matter being entirely tolerant of Catholics and never mind uh, non-Christians. But once it's been kind of written into the constitution, yeah. then, you know, a bit like the Declaration of Independence, you know, these are slow burners that will burn their way through American history. Yeah, that's right. And, and disestablishment happens across the new United States in those places that still have a church establishment quite quickly afterwards. Massachusetts is the last, I believe, is the last state to disestablish its church. Um, so they hold the Puritan tradition clings on there for a long time. But but that's also something that's, that's deeply ingrained in their sense of being of, of English liberties. That isn't, they wouldn't have regarded that as something that's entirely new. They would have said, well, we, we've always had religious liberty or we thought we had and 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 the american revolution has given it an impetus and it's and it's focused you know the, the the church of england and the church establishment was clearly associated and in a place like virginia um which had an established anglican church associated with toryism support for the king and so yeah. they were de delegitimized yeah so there's that great thing right from jefferson it does mean no injury for my neighbor to say there are 20 gods or no god it neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg and i guess only someone who's been through a very violent war could maybe have made that 
made that case. Yeah, so though Thomas Jefferson himself had not actually been through the violent no, war, of course, he okay, the war in, okay. France, in France. Yeah. But but yeah. Uh, yes, no. But I take your point. But 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 Jefferson's sort of performative um, uh, secularism was was not typical. I mean, you know, most of the most of the rest. I mean, Jefferson did did say he was a deist, and Tom Paine, of course, was was certainly performatively non-religious. But um, but not the rest of them. The rest of them were all very pious, church attending Presbyterians or Congregationalists. But Jefferson is a kind of sign of how far that can be pushed, and that kind of brief window where it's possible to establish a new country on broadly Enlightenment principles. Yeah, Tom, you love Jefferson, but I can tell from that the I way don't Adam, love Jefferson. the way that Adam uses the word <laughs> performatively. <laughs> that I, he's, I mean, he's the rankest of the of hypocrites. I oh, think, he is. He's a terrible one. Right, he <laughs> ranks Tom with um, Bosie Douglas, John Lennon, and Virginia Woolf as absolute enemies, sworn foes of the rest of history, <laughs> and some of the worst people who've ever lived. Now, I, I don't include John Lennon in that. Uh, uh, before we move on <laughs> to the to the future for the United States. There is, of course, one other country in North America that is created by these years, and that is Canada. Is that too strong to say that this is the foundational moment of uh, of, the, of Canada? No, I mean Canada as as an entity doesn't exist uh, quite at this point, but by definition, it it exists because it's British North America, I and mean, that's how people begin to refer to it: it's British North America, and 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 everything that happens in British North America is also happening in the United States. I mean, it's a place of relative religious freedom and relatively high levels of political participation and access to land and wars with indigenous people and stories of exploitation. What it doesn't have is slavery, and it doesn't have a republican constitution. But it it develops and flourishes and prospers, and Canadian history begins at this moment. So that's Canada. The United States. So suddenly the United States, 1783, its, its independence has been recognized by Britain, which must seem like an absolutely extraordinary moment. Of course, of course they've, they've thought of themselves as independent since the mid-1770s, but now they have it de jure as well as de facto. But is the United States a nation at that point? Surely it's just 13 different colonies in, a, in an uneasy confederation. In an uneasy confederation, in a dangerous world um, with no template that they can follow, well, ancient Rome, perhaps. <laughs> well, they they are they are looking they are looking to ancient Rome. Some of them are even looking at at, at Swiss republics and the, the the Dutch Republic. I mean, there are historical precedents that the ancient ones are the are the most relevant. Because the assumption is at this point in in European society that republics basically implode. Yeah, that's the assumption that they're inherently unstable. Yeah, but I mean, they are unstable at first, aren't they? They've got Shays Rebellion. Um, they've got lots of un, sort of local issues unresolved. They've got the issue of the Native Americans on the frontier. Who knows that the French might not come back, the British might come back, and they have no leadership, no capital, no government, really, do they at no, this point? I mean, there's effectively the Articles of Confederation are really more like a kind of peace treaty among these 13 newly independent states with no proper executive. They theoretically have treaty making power but they've got no tax raising ability so it's a it's a very shaky um, beginning for the newly united states and then what i mean anybody who's seen the musical hamilton will know that alexander hamilton who we've not mentioned at all and james madison who i think we mentioned in passing that they are two of the key figures in creating a kind of national government and moving towards a constitution and a much stronger executive a president a, mon- a monarch effectively 
um, an elected monarch. What is it that pro- that provokes them to do that? And why does everybody else, having been anti-government and anti-British power and all that stuff for so long, why do they suddenly say, okay, well, now we need to... Is, is it fear? Is it What is it? Fundamentally, it is fear, but there, but there is a, a effectively a revolution in favour of government, to, to use a phrase that other historians have used. Well, it's their government, right? I mean, that's the key difference. It's not governments being practised uh, on the other side of the ocean. It's their government and they can choose it. That's, that's exactly right. And, you know, John Adams said around about the time of the uh, Declaration of Independence that there's, there's something odious in a government a thousand leagues away. And this this whole movement is about yes taking back control and creating a government of our of our own. Well, they have representation, and so now they can have taxation. Yes, exactly. But there's a continuing unease about it. I mean, without getting into the whole all the sort of the the, the dotting the last i's and crossing the t's of the constitution making, there's a tension between federalists, which is Hamilton, Madison, and Co., anti-federalists, which is Jefferson about whether or not there should be a powerful state, whether there should be a central government, whether you should just let the states get on with it. And would it be too strong to say that that runs all that argument, which is happening in the aftermath of the Treaty of Paris and then to the adoption of the Constitution in Philadelphia in 1787, that runs all the way through American history? Or is that, am I just being too simplistic and back-projecting current American political debates to the 18th century. The nature of the debate changes, obviously, over the generations, but that fundamental tension is there right from the beginning. And there's huge unease and an opposition to the project of creating a strong, uh, a stronger central government. There's, there's this huge discomfort with the presidency in particular as a, as a strong executive with prerogative powers that far exceed what George III had, a kind of model of executive, a single executive based on a kind of Stuart conception of kingship, admittedly with the pretty massive caveat that the person is elected <laughs> rather than has any notion of, a, of being divinely appointed and, and being hereditary. Yeah. But nevertheless, a model of the constitution that is like a kind of pre-glorious revolution English version of the English constitution with a, with a strong executive and a separately, elected, uh, separately selected legislature. But again, there is a slight hint of the Roman about it. Because you have the figure of Washington, this great general who has led his people, his fellow citizens, and then he returns to his plow. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. the image of it. George III himself had said, if Washington does that, then he is the greatest man in history, or words to that effect. And he does. He goes back to Mount Vernon and, and farms, or at least he gets his enslaved people to farm for him. So in a sense, when the Americans are thinking, you know, we want this kind of monarchical president they can do that with a degree of confidence yes. that they have the ideal candidate to hand, a figure of antique Roman virtue. Yes, and I think we probably haven't emphasised Washington enough, actually, the figure that Washington became through the war. I mean, Dominic, you said, is this a nation? I mean, I mean who knows whether it's, I mean, you can argue about what makes a nation. Of course, historians spend a lot of time doing so. But, but if anything has made a nation, it's the experience of war and it's the figure of George Washington as the embodiment of the American cause with his honor and his integrity and his apparent inability to ever tell a lie. So that's a fascinating <laughs> question. So you're right, yeah. So um, that raises an interesting question about Washington. Are the Americans fortunate to have somebody like Washington who gives them a focal point, a hero, 
a figure around which the nation can coalesce? Or were they always going to produce somebody like that onto whom they could project those qualities? Mm. Do you think, Adam? I mean, should we, in other words, is Washington a creation of the kind of national imagination? Well, there's, there's, there's certainly something, there's certainly something in that. There was, there was evidently a yearning for some kind of, you know, replacement father figure. Um, they got rid of one George, but fortunately they had another George ready to, in some respects, step into the shoes of the deposed king. They were fortunate that Washington was such a good figure on which to project their desires and hopes. But I think, I mean, I think that question massively underplays the the moral stature of Washington as a political leader. Because if you think of the English Revolution, the American Revolution, the French Revolution, the English Revolution throws up Cromwell. Great man. The French Revolution throws up Napoleon, both of whom essentially become dictatorial figures. Washington doesn't. And that then establishes the whole kind of tenor of the American presidency and therefore the character of the United States, not just as a republic, but in the very long run, a, a democracy as well. Strongly agree with that, Tom. I, I think I think Washington was a great man. And I think he probably is a figure that we need to recognize more for his role in these, in all of these events and in the creation of the United States. Yes, I don't know who we is in that sentence either. <laughs> well, well, I guess, Adam, that you might be talking about your academic peers, the scholars who study the, uh, the, the, the American Revolution and uh, the origins of American history. Because, of course, this is now, you know, it's not just a matter for scholars, is it? It's highly contested political territory. And the idea that Washington might be criticized more for owning slaves, say, than for defeating the British, which would have been a kind of unheard of idea, maybe even 20 years ago, 30 years ago, is now quite current in America. Yes. I mean, at every stage in this story and in all the stories that you two tell on your podcast, there is huge contingency, right? And that's, you know, that's what you two do so well is to tell a story always with a kind of sense of alternative possibilities. And that's what history is. And by contingency, of course, we don't mean just sheer luck. We mean the kind of awareness of other options at every moment. And, and George Washington's personality shaped the key moments, shaped that contingency in ways that benefited the future stability and, in some respects, the openness and liberal freedom of the newly created United States. But can I ask then, the corollary of that is that if the stature of Washington is so is kind of like the foundation stone of the myth of America's beginnings, and I don't use myth in a pejorative sense. I mean, no. a myth is something that is powerful and can be ennobling and inspiring, that if that foundation stone starts to kind of be, you know, you start to shift it, you tug at it, you kind of question it. Is that improving Americans' understandings of their past and therefore opening up new opportunities for kind of making a better state? Or is it by damaging the kind of the origin myth, are you damaging the coherence and the fabric of the American Republic as it exists now? I mean, that's a massive question, but it's, it is one that, that seems to shadow a lot of the debate in contemporary America about the American Revolution. There's a lot of deep discomfort in the contemporary United States with a story of the national origins, which is built around great men and great white men and great white men, who many of whom were the owners of, claimed to be the owners of other human beings. Among whom was Washington himself and Jefferson, who wrote the Declaration of Independence. Yeah, And James Madison, who was the principal author of the Constitution. And Patrick Henry, who said, give me liberty or give me death. There's deep discomfort about that. And you can understand why. 
I mean, you can understand why, can't you? And, and, and in a way, the remarkable thing is that it's taken until this point in the 21st century for that kind of critique to have the popular purchase that it has now. And I think, you know, you mentioned in a previous episode, the New York Times 1619 project and the fundamental value of the 1619 project is to challenge that old framing in a very direct way. And so it's directly and deliberately replacing 1776 with 1619, the date at which unfree black people were landed in Virginia, and saying that that is the real origin moment of the United States rather than 1776. Of course, they're both still operating within the same frame, which is that there has to be a moment of origin. And in both cases, that 1776 or 1619 were in some teleological sense leading towards the creation of something called the United States. So last question, Adam, for you, because you have been, I should say, for the for those listeners who've listened to this over two weeks, you've been listening to this over two weeks, but Adam has been doing this over basically the course of four hours in one go. Well, so have you two. In fact, I haven't been dubbed yeah, in. We've just been following <laughs> the questions to you. It's not like Megan and Harris podcast. We're there with you. <laughs> yeah, we don't do the questions separately. So Adam, where does the story of the American Revolution go from here? Because of course, it's so contested at the moment. People argue about precisely these things that you've been talking about. But as you look forward, how do you think people will... I mean, do you think the patriotic narrative that we see now when we go to Boston, we do the Freedom Trail, or you go to Mount Vernon, or you, you know, walk around Washington, D.C., and you see all the sites. Do you think that will, that will effectively survive? And, you know, it's challenged in the New York Times and by in the Academy, but effectively it, it's ro- too rooted now in the American imagination. Or do you think there will be more changes to come in the 21st century? I don't know, but I think that... If the American Republic is is going to survive in something like its present form, and of course it is you know, the oldest continuous, I mean, it's an incredibly old country, the United States, with the world's oldest codified constitution. Um, if it's going to continue, then it needs its origin myth. And that the origin myth has always evolved. It's never a, a static thing. And there should be a way, and there is a way, of telling the story of the American Revolution and the founding of the Republic and those ringing principles of the Declaration of Independence and the value of republicanism and the commitment to popular participation in politics and openness and the commitment to being an asylum for mankind and all of these things, there should be a way of telling that story in a way that is more inclusive than has been the case over most of the last two centuries. And the reason why I think the 1619 Project has been so challenging to some of my academic colleagues of an older generation is because of their fear that by changing the frame so dramatically to focus on the question of race and slavery, then everything else will go. And there are certainly academic colleagues of mine in the United States on the left and generally of a younger generation who want to do that, who want to throw out the whole concept of the nation state and who see the United States as fundamentally corrupted and can't imagine any true emancipation within the context of the policy that was created in 1776 or 1787. There are those people. And from the point of view of of, of us in Britain, one of the weird corollaries of, of, of this narrative that basically the American colonists in the um, in the War of Independence were fighting to keep slavery 
is to cast the British Empire rather implausibly as an agent of abolitionism, which in due course, of course, it does become, but but not at this point, right? I mean, it doesn't get British imperialism off the hook to say that actually uh, they were the goodies in this, because that's clearly not true. There are lots of ways in which the 1619 project can be and has been critiqued. And insofar as the original 1619 articles suggested that defense of slavery was a principal reason for the American Revolution and that there was a deep anxiety on the part of American slaveholders that the British Empire was turning to anti-slavery, that is a great exaggeration. I mean, as, as, as we discussed, it was certainly true in the Carolinas and Virginia that plenty of slaveholders were terrified at the prospect of the British mm. using enslaved people against them. It is not true, generally speaking, to say the American Revolution was fought in defense of slavery. There are people who directly make the connection between the secession of the 13 American colonies in the 1770s and the secession of the southern states in 1861. Um, that is hugely overdrawn, in my opinion. Not least because while in the 1860s, there was a big anti-slavery movement in the northern states and there were genuine reasons for southern slaveholders to think that their security, their slave property would be undermined within the union. That just wasn't true to anything like the same degree in the 1770s. There was an anti-slavery movement in Britain. There was an anti-slavery movement in Philadelphia and in New England. It was not one that was going to overwhelm the slaveholders' uh, security had they remained uh, within the British Empire. What threatened their slave property was participating in rebellion. Okay. Adam, we've worked you hard enough, I think. That has been a tremendous performance. Tom, I think a, a tour de force is the, uh, the time-honoured expression, isn't it? Uh, yes, I, I would say a, a Washingtonian campaign. <laughs> a Washingtonian campaign. You were skulking in Valley Forge. That's right. <laughs> and, and not with your own teeth. So if you've enjoyed Adam's performance and you haven't already heard him, Adam also did four terrific episodes for us about the American Civil War this time last year, which you can find on our various channels. Adam, you have performed, I think you now hold the record, actually, for the most appearances on The Rest is History. What an honour. What an honour. Well, some, I, mean, I don't know whether all your academic colleagues would consider it. <laughs> so, so don't advertise it to them. But, um, but also, Dominic, we must mention um, Adam's own podcast. We must. The Last Best Hope. The Last, Best, Last hope. Best Hope, on which, on which in a recent, if listeners go to The Last Best Hope, they will hear another friend of this podcast, Dan Jackson, explaining how Geordies shaped Southern American culture. You Brilliant. stunned me. So basically everything in America, it's all about Geordies. It's all about wow. Geordies. Who'd have yeah. thought that Dan would come up with that? So Adam, <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you to everybody for listening. And we will see you next time. Bye-bye. 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 Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hold up. 